You know, last week, uh, during our first week where we had gathered again, I did not address the recent events in our country. It was our first time gathering again. It was communion. But today I want us to see things the way that God sees them, and we must have His wisdom and discernment for the time in which we live. So as I prepared to speak about seeking first His kingdom out of Matthew chapter 6, I wanted to say a few things at the beginning here about this earthly kingdom. The Bible tells us in the book of Daniel in 2.20 that God raises up kingdoms and He disposes them. They are temporary at best. And the sin in the heart of every man that does not know Christ affects the entire society in which we live. And the further a society gets away from the rule of God, from the reign of God, away from His holy word and God's moral law, the further that society descends into collective depravity. We are living in a society that in large measure has given itself over to sexual perversion, the murder of unborn children, the evil of racism, and now we see the senseless, violent rebellion unleashed in our society. We have seen the abuse of authority in the heartbreaking and even appalling video and death of George Floyd. It obviously was unjust and it was unrighteous as well as we have seen the ensuing abuse to authority as police officers have been targeted and even murdered. We live, beloved, you know that, in a broken and fallen world where there often is no justice nor righteousness. Ken read on that and spoke of that a little earlier in the reading of Scripture and in, in his prayer. The Bible says this in Psalm 89, 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And so we long for that day. Our hope is the reign of God. But it will not be realized here on this earth. And so we look to heaven. We look to the true king. We long for justice and righteousness to rule and reign in the person of Christ. Uh, let me be very clear with you. There is no room in the family of God for the sin of partiality to believe that you are inherently superior to another simply because of your skin color or nationality or ethnicity or whatever is a sin. And you know that and I know that. And if you see that in your heart, then confess and repent. Beloved, we have been exhorted in the scripture to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We're commanded to weep with those who weep. And in the body of Christ, we are to love each other, to forgive each other, to put one another more important than ourselves. And let's do that and let's do that well. And maybe just to remind you of Paul's words in the book of 1 Timothy 2.1, we're to lift holy hands, prayers, petitions, intercessions, and thanksgiving is to be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and in holiness. 
And so that's our desire. And may we pray to that end that we can continue to strive for the kingdom of God. Let me just pray for us and we'll turn our attention to the word of God. Father, we love you and we give thanks. And we pray for a revival in this country and in the globe in which we live, Father. The greatest hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest hope is the gospel. And Father, in our hearts, we know that as true believers. I pray that we would live that out. I pray that we would be transformed internally, that we might be transformed externally, and that we might be able to be the hands and feet of the Lord Jesus Christ as the corporate body of Christ. So Lord, we turn our attention this day to that great statement in Matthew to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Father, fall on this place. Fall on every heart, including my own. Father, transform us that we might live out these truths in which we live. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, take your Bible and open it to Matthew chapter 6. If you're visiting today or you've not been watching uh, in the last weeks, we've been on a, on a series. I just did it out of Matthew, a little out of Ephesians. It's the cure for anxiety in a pandemic age. And we're actually on part six, and I think I'll finish it next week. My heart is to turn us to the exposition of the book of Ephesians. But I decided to turn, in light of coronavirus and in light of where we find ourselves now, to address this issue of the cure for anxiety in a pandemic age. And I didn't do it because I felt like you were panicked. I don't feel like I'm panicked. Our elder team is not panicked. I would say we're not even anxious. I really have been bringing this message to you so that you can minister to people. Our goal here again at, the Lord, at Grace Church on the Lord's Day is to equip you. We're here to build you up. So I thought I would build you up and equip you regarding what the Word of God says on that subject of anxiety so that we might be transforming agents in this world. Maybe I could begin by asking, are you anxious about the future? Anxious about your singleness? Anxious about the world in which we live, your health, your financial difficulties, your current job or even no job. A child possibly brings you anxiety or worry. Possibly it's a spouse, an aging mother, father, or maybe you would say all of the above. I mean, we are rarely anxious, the Bible tells us for today. When you think of that ideal of anxiety, when you think about that concept of worry, anxiety and worry both deal in the realm of the future. It's really the future that can consume us. In fact, it would be fair to say that all anxiety, all worry regards tomorrow. Whether it's the necessities of life, food, clothing, or anything else, we are anxious in the present about something in the future. Namely, in this text, anxious about tomorrow. There is no question that anxiety and worry in some impending trial can suck the life out of you, can suck the life out of us. It can create, doctors will tell us, ulcers. You can lose sleep over it. You could get dry mouth. 
You can get heartburn. You can get indigestion. You can cause your skin to break out. It can paralyze you. It can just stymie you in your present position. Now the scripture, as you look at it in Matthew chapter 6, six times there in verse 25 down through 34, it commands us, does the Lord Jesus, to not be anxious. You've seen that before. I won't read it to you, but look in verse 25. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. If you glance down, secondly, in verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life or his span of life? A third time in verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? And then it says down in verse 31, therefore do not be anxious. What shall we eat? What shall we wear? And then, of course, in 34, It's mentioned twice, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Beloved, six different times you and I are commanded in the scripture to not be anxious. Now, much of our anxiety, as you follow back with me in the context, in verses 19 through 34, deals with the subject of materialism. Often it's anxiety over finances. You know, it's interesting when you think about that concept of the treasures mentioned in 619 through 21. The Bible's really very fascinating about what it says about money. Did you know that Christ said more about money and possessions than he did about heaven and hell combined? I mean, it's a serious issue. That's right. More about money more about possessions than he did about heaven and hell combined. In fact, in the Gospels, one out of every ten verses deals with the subject of money and possessions. I could state it another way, that in the Bible there are over 500 references to prayer, less than 500 references to faith, but there are over 2,000 references to money and possessions. And so as we think about the future, it's often those things that we think through. It's a major issue. So our Lord deals with, in 619 through 24, He deals with wealth and possessions. But in 25 through 34, He tackles the issue of anxiety or worry. If you hear me say anxiety, some translations say worry. If you hear me say worry, it's the same thought of anxiety. Is there a cure for anxiety? Uh, Yes. And here's anxiety's description, and here's its antidote. And what our Lord gives us, and we've looked at this two weeks ago, He gives us three reasons why anxiety... Why worry is incompatible with our faith in our Heavenly Father. Three reasons why it's incompatible to the faith that we possess and profess and in our Heavenly Father who meets our, all of our needs. Now we looked at the first two reasons. I just remind you there. First, he states a promise. Excuse me, Jesus states a principle. It's in verse 25. Look at verse 25. Here's the principle, I tell you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will put on. 
for your, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. And the principle here, by the Lord Jesus Christ, is he does not want you to be anxious. He does not want you to be worried about life's necessities. And so he says in 25, don't wor be worried about your life. And he argues in this principle convincingly, convincingly, look at verse 25, is not your life more than food and the body more than clothes? And the answer would be yes. And so he states the biblical principle to govern the text to not be anxious. Now, the question that would come out of the text is, why though? And so secondly, what he does here is he sketches a picture. He sketches a picture in verses 26 through 30. And he gives three, if you will, pictures as to why not to be anxious. And it's stated there in your outline, I'll just touch on it. He says, number one, your father has provided for you. And he says, look at the birds and they do not sow, nor do they reap, nor do they gather into the barns, but your father feeds them. And here's the principle, are you not worth much more than they? And so here, as he sketches this picture, he said, your father's provided, and he uses the pictures of the birds. They're not reaping, they're not sowing, they're not uh, gathering into barns, and yet your father feeds them. Then he gives a second picture that your future is decided. Not just that your father's provided, but your future's decided. You, by, which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And the thought is no one. And then here, he states a, a third picture that your fashion, I just said, is derided. He said, why are you so anxious about your clothing and he says, will he not much more clothe you? Now, <clears throat> the reason for this principle is look in verse 31. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. In other words, you don't have to be anxious. You don't have to worry about life's necessities. And here's why. You have a Father, a Heavenly Father, who created the world, who knows that you need them all. So listen, right now, whatever you're thinking about in terms of your future, in terms of your family, in terms of your health, in terms of your trial, you have a Father who knows that you need them all. He's aware. He's omniscient. It's enough to say that God is not a deadbeat dad. He is your heavenly Father who provides for the birds, who clothes the lilies of the field, who knows your lifespan in His sovereignty, and He will take care of you. Now, here's the principle then. Because your heavenly Father knows what you need, then GCV, you need to only be concerned really about one thing. And it's bound up there in verse 33. Would you look at it there? It says, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. 
There's the statement. It's bold. It's strong. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. So in contrast to the Gentiles in verse 32, who seek after food, who seek after some future that they see, who seek after fashion, the Gentiles in verse 32, who have no heavenly father, you are commanded, and if you're a child in Christ, if you're in junior high, if you're in high school, you're at university, an adult, you have one command here, and that's to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So he states a principle, he sketches, if you will, a picture, and thirdly now, he secures a promise. He secures a promise. I mean, you might ask, if we're not to worry, what are we to do? And he replaces, if you will, anxiety with two heavenly priorities. Now let me take you into that priority. You're to seek his kingdom, and you're secondly to seek after righteousness. So let's look at those two heavenly priorities, and I hope that the familiarity of this text, you probably know it by heart, that you'll study again and learn again and evaluate and examine yourself as to the priorities in your life. Jesus says here, first, to seek his kingdom. You can see it there in the text. In the first word, he creates a contrast here. But, he says, but, seek first his kingdom. It's best to translate it, I think, rather, and I think the thought would be out of the text here, rather than worrying like the Gentiles, and rather than being a believer in verse 30 in the OE of Little Faith Club, He wants you, he wants my own heart to seek first the kingdom of God. I don't think that's hard to see that transition there. That rather than being materially focused, rather than being consumed with an earthly treasure, seek the kingdom of God. Now you might ask, and just I remind you, what is the kingdom of God? We've seen that verse before. We know it by heart, we state it, but he's, he's telling us, commanding us, exhorting us to do something, and he's exhorting us to seek the kingdom of God. It's just the Greek word basileia, and the kingdom of God is Christ's rule. It is the, the, the rule of God. It is the reign of God. It is the dominion of God. Really, that's what it means. It's seeking there, we're, we're seeking his kingdom, the rule of God, the reign of God, the, the dominion of God. It is this, it is, the kingdom of God is the reign of God in the lives of those who belong to him. Here is to be our prime ambition in life. Now let me say this, that if you're a believer here this morning, you, you have entered into the kingdom of God. When you came to Christ, when you confessed your sin, when you repented of your sin, when you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you entered into the reign of God. You entered into the rule of God. In fact, it's presently, if you will, manifested that kingdom in our hearts. In fact, let me just show you a couple of texts. 
Just look back a page or two. Look back to the, the, the Matthew chapter 4. In fact, it's fascinating that when Jesus began his ministry in Matthew 4, after John in verse 17 had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He said in verse 16, quoting the Old Testament, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who dwell are dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And watch this, underline this. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so when Christ came, in came the kingdom of God. In came the kingdom of heaven. When he was on this earth, the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And if you walk again, look again, watch again, look down to verse 23. It says in chapter 4 that he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, here's the phrase, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so the kingdom of God, if you will, had come in the midst. And if you're in Christ, the kingdom of God, you have already entered into that kingdom. Now that kingdom then, beloved, is present in our hearts where it rules and reign. But secondly, that kingdom is coming, we like to say, in consummation. There's a greater coming kingdom. There's a greater rule of God. A greater reign of God will not only it will take place in our hearts, but it will take place physically and earthly where Christ will be king. And so here he says to seek the kingdom of God. Really what this is is an elaboration on the Lord's prayer. Remember he said pray in this way, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You remember the next phrase? Thy kingdom, what? Come. In other words, it's inside our hearts and lives reigning, but we're praying thy kingdom come for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to reign in justice, to reign in righteousness. Now the command here for you, look again at the text, is to seek, as it says there, his kingdom. That word seek is, a, we say, a present imperative verb. In other words, your life, my life, isn't to get caught up in the here and now, only on the earthly. You have a challenge to seek the kingdom of God, and you're to do that in an unceasing quest. You are to be absorbed in that. You are to make a strenuous effort to obtain that. That's the thought. You are to devote yourself to searching after this kingdom, to striving for this kingdom, to aim for this kingdom, to constantly seek this kingdom. Now it's ruling and reigning, but we're, we're looking to that kingdom that's coming. Now, now look again at the text. It doesn't just say to do it amongst a number of your objections or your, your opportunities and objectives. It says here to seek first the kingdom. In other words, in your life and my life, you have uh, kind of a series of options, if you will. 
And what our Lord is saying is rather than being like a Gentile, who all they do is fix and focus and live their life for this earth, you are to seek first of all the priorities in life. This is to be number one. God's kingdom and His righteousness are to be your chief concern. It is to be your greatest pursuit. It is to be your greatest priority. In other words, the kingdom of God, families, is to have no rival. You are to make His coming kingdom that rule and reign presently your greatest pursuit. So Jesus demands not simply that we refrain from the earthly pursuits of the Gentiles, but that we replace such pursuits with a goal that is far purer, far nobler, far more significant, and that would be the kingdom of God. In other words, let me put some skin on it for you, practically. It means that your objective, fathers, is to seek Christ's rule, is to seek Christ's reign. You do that internally, but you desire that kingdom to come. I, I would say even as we think about what that means, it means that you have to enter the kingdom of God. You have to participate in it. And you do that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It would mean this, that obedience to the will of God is to be the priority in your life. Meaning that His commands and your obedience to His commands ought to be the passion of your life. It would mean this, beloved, that you are to store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. In other words, you ought to make your treasure His coming kingdom, not this earthly world. It means, again, that you submit to the King now. It means that you submit to the King today. It probably involves the aspect of risk. In other words, you're not, I'm not to seek comfort here. At times we have to risk our life for the kingdom of God. You are to focus on the spiritual rather than the physical. I think what's so disheartening for people now is, at least in the U.S., it's, as one said, embarrassing. As one said, as the globe looks on, they see a world on fire. And part of that could be, obviously, we want righteousness to reign, but whatever we sometimes cherish, we see crumbling before our eyes. But you as a believer, you as a mother, ought to be prioritizing the kingdom of God in your life and to your children. You can just ask it this way when you say, what does that mean to seek first the kingdom of God? Is ask this question, do I live for the glory of God? Is my school about the glory of God? Is my business about the glory of God? The way I'm conducting myself in my home, is it about the glory of God and His kingdom ruling in our heart and His coming kingdom? Does that show in your choices? You just have to ask that. Does it show in how you handle your money? Does it show in the use of your spiritual gifts? 
I really don't think it's anything different than Deuteronomy 6.4 where we were commanded to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, sometimes this may sound a little sarcastic and I, I don't know, I don't mean it that way. But I sometimes see on social media posts, and if you've done this, um, listen, I'm not trying to create some kind of guilt. I think I'm just trying to illustrate a point. I see it a lot on Instagram. And somebody has the picture, and then the post is this. I'm obsessed with this. I'm obsessed with this. Now, sometimes they probably mean that genuinely and with sincere heart. Sometimes it's related to food. Sometimes, often, it's related to clothing. Sometimes it's related to children. But listen, beloved, as those who have entered into the kingdom, we need to prioritize. We need to be obsessed with one thing over a bunch of other items, and that's this. Seek the kingdom of God. In fact, I just want you to evaluate your own life with that thought. What is it that you are pursuing? And maybe I could ask, are you pouring all your energies into the kingdom of God, or are you pouring the priority and domination of your life into this world? Are you investing into the kingdom of God or are you investing yourself into this world? Certainly one of the things that seeking the kingdom of God means is that you seek to bring people to Jesus Christ. Certainly one of the things that it means to seek first the kingdom of God is that you long for Jesus to return in His millennial glory. Listen, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet, but I do work for a nonprofit, a church. This world's going to get a lot worse. It's what the Bible says. Bad things will proceed from, if you will, from bad to, to worse. There will be false teachers deceiving and being deceived. We might find ourselves in the midst of it. And I'm not trying to be uh, cruel or harsh in saying that. I'm not trying to be a doomsayer in any way. But I am saying that no matter where we were 20 years ago, no matter where we are in 20 years to come, you dads need to lead your family. You mothers need to raise children that cherish the kingdom of God. It first has to rule in your heart. And then it can rule in your family. So let me just ask you, parents. Is your concern mostly physical? And obviously that's part of being a parent. Or do you take it as your great challenge to raise your kids spiritually? Are you setting your gaze and passion on the kingdom that reigns presently? The kingdom that will come At the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our ambition should be to glorify Him in all that we do. But there's a second, if you will, heavenly priority. Not just seek His kingdom, but secondly, you can see it there, to seek after His righteousness. 
You say, well, Scott, what is that? What does that mean, seek after his righteousness? Well, let me just say this. He's saying at least at the outset, don't chase earthly treasure. Chase righteousness. Don't chase after something that's going to burn up, if you will, and wither away. Chase after something that won't, and here it's righteousness. But you might say, well, what is that? Let me just remind you of this. There's a couple of different righteousness mentioned in the scripture. One of those we read today did Ken. It's called the imputed righteousness. Paul describes the imputed righteousness of Christ in Galatians. He describes it in Romans. He describes it in the reading today in Philippians. That's the righteousness that the Lord Jesus Christ gives you at salvation. When you come to Christ, when you enter the kingdom, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, when you confess your sins, when you put all your hope on Him, when you become a believer, when you're born again, when you're regenerated, in that moment, God Almighty justifies you, and in justifying you, He imparts to you a righteousness that you did not have, a righteousness that is not your own. He gives to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But there's another righteousness. It's not just the imputed righteousness that God gives. There is what we can call an imparted righteousness in daily living. It is a practical righteousness. That's the focus here. You are seeking after, here's the word, holiness holiness. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount has dealt with. In other words, the righteousness that's described here is that you're controlling your anger in chapter 5. That if you're really letting the kingdom of God rule in your heart, then you will resolve conflicts. That's what it says in Matthew chapter 5. You will be sexually pure. You will be faithful to your word. You will forgive others. You will love your enemies and you will do that all for the glory of God and a heavenly reward. So seek righteousness. What does that mean? Well, seek holiness. Seek a godly character. In fact, remember Jesus said earlier in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Isn't that amazing? You're satisfied not by seeking the earthly treasure. You're satisfied by hungering and thirsting after righteousness. In fact, Paul said in Romans 14, 17, that the kingdom of God is not eating, drinking. He said, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, at least in Matthew 5, 10, and the pursuit of it may result in persecution. But here's the, the two priorities, if you will, the, the two objectives, to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Now remember here, the third point is he secures a promise. He states a principle, he sketches a picture, he secures a promise. Look again at 33. It says, as you seek his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. All these things, that's the promise, will be added unto you. You say, well, is he 
He's preaching, as some might say, a health and wealth prosperity gospel. And the answer is categorically no. Because the context is not talking about luxuries. It's talking about life's necessities. He's talking about food, clothing, and drink, not our luxuries. So when you pursue His kingdom, when you pursue His righteousness, your heavenly Father here's the point, will meet your needs. He will meet your needs. So he secures a promise. What's the promise? Is this, that all these things will be added unto you. So if you don't have to worry about the necessities of life, it frees you up because you have a heavenly Father who will take care of you. I mean, maybe even as you come, you're anxious and worried and I just want to encourage you, you don't have to be. You ought to replace worry and replace anxiety with this gospel affirmation to seek his kingdom and seek after righteousness. Do you remember that song, some of you who have been in Christ a, a long time? It, it's just the song, and I've met the songwriter. I spoke at a conference, and she was leading worship. Her name was Karen and is Karen Lafferty. But she wrote that song. Do you remember it? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. How many of you have sung that in your Christian life? Sure, a number of you. She wrote it in 1971. It's almost 50 years old. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Allelu, alleluia. And so this is to be your priority. Look at the last verse, and we'll look at that next week. Look at the last verse, you know it, where he would tell us about this tomorrow. You think about the world in which we live. Jesus says in 34, Therefore do not be anxious, he says about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be Anxious for itself, sufficient for the day, is its own trouble. That's next week. Listen, I close with this. There, nearly 200 years ago, there were two Scottish brothers, and their names were John and David Livingstone. John had set his mind on making money, and becoming wealthy, and he did. But under his name in an old edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, John is simply listed as the brother of David Livingstone. And who is David Livingstone? Well, while John dedicated himself to making money, David had knelt and prayed surrendering himself to Christ, here's what he resolved, quote, he said, I will place no value on anything I have or possess unless it is in relationship to the kingdom of God. In fact, if you were to go to his burial place, the inscription over that burial place in Westminster Abbey reads this, quote, for 30 years, his life was spent in an unwearied effort to evangelize, end of quote. 
And on his 59th birthday, David Livingston wrote, quote, My Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again dedicate my whole self to thee. So let me just say in the midst of this coronavirus, in the midst of a U.S. that is on fire, that is rioting, in the midst of an unknown future, my exhortation to you, my appeal to you, my love for you, is to say out of all the priorities in life, you make sure that you're prioritizing His kingdom, the rule in your heart, the coming reign of His coming kingdom, and you seek after practical righteousness, that you seek after holiness. And the Bible says that all these things will be added unto you.